we missed all the fun conversation about uh, plants and organization and Spider-Man. We haven't gotten into the anatomy in the background of you yet, though. That's right. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's great. They, they look like SpongeBob eyes. That was my first thought. You're the second person that said that. That's so funny. I never thought about it until this week. I did another interview, and they were like, oh, obviously, it's SpongeBob back there. And you're right. It kind of does look like it. It's so funny. Well, I guess since so you do, <laughs> that's okay. So we missed recording you kind of like assessing our personalities based on the background, but here's something <laughs> since, you know, the primary audience for or this podcast is musicians. Can you guess what we all play? Ooh, okay. Well, uh, let's see. Um, mm, mm, mm. Uh, Andrew, do you play bass? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is what I play. Like upright bass? Oh yeah, that's. I don't know why I could picture that. <laughs> that was spot on. That's yeah. weird. Uh, Sapphire, you you play piano and violin, maybe? No. Uh, no. Uh, I mean, I pass keyboard skills. Okay. So I in theory can play the piano. Are you a drummer? No, I wish no. I was. I cannot tell. I can. Seems like Clarinet. you can do everything. Clarinet, really. Uh, okay, Ian, you, are you a percussionist? I am not. No? I'm a family of percussionists, though. Okay, okay. Not. Oh, boy. Uh, are you a woodwind player? No. No? Me. Boy, no. This is, I, can't, I can't do it. I'm a trombonist. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, I don't know why Andrew was so easy. Hey, one yeah. of three is pretty I can picture. I can picture, somehow I could just visualize, <laughs> you know. If you're a primary instrument trumpet, no, no, uh, I'm a drummer. Uh, that's where I started. Okay. Yeah, for sure. That's why you wanted Ian I to be percussionist. I think so. Yeah, I yeah. Wanted, yeah, I was trying to make make friends. Oh well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I write friends. I write for percussion a lot. I'm writing for oh, a percussion quartet right now. So <laughs> amazing! That's great. All right. Well, shall we jump into the interview? For sure. All right, well, formal introduction. Welcome to Chatting with Creators. I'm joined by my guest co-host, Andrew, a bassist, composer, and educator, and Ian, a trombonist and educator. And we're really excited to have you on the show today to talk about your personal journey to becoming a composer and your work specifically on the Cuphead show for Netflix. For anyone that isn't familiar with your work, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Sure, my name is Eagle Plum and I'm a composer for Cartoons primarily, that's uh, pretty much what I like doing and focus on. Uh, I have, I've composed music for SpongeBob SquarePants, um, uh, of course, the Cuphead show, which we're talking about, and uh, other shows in the SpongeBob universe now, which are like uh, the Patrick Star Show and Camp Coral. Uh, in addition, I've done some music for uh, Star vs. the Forces of Evil, uh, Welcome to the Wayne, Harvey Beaks, Making Fiends. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jellystone at Warner Brothers, which is the Hanna-Barbera reboot. Um, yeah, I love cartoons. <laughs> no, I don't so know. So much it just that really... it's like sublimity, subliminally in your wallpaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. SpongeBob <laughs> lives in my walls. I'm, it's always there. It's, he, he, I can't escape him no matter how much I try. So when we were, we were all sat down to watch the show together and we found it to uh the cuphead show and we were like 
this is not what we were really expecting at all. When you finally, you know, first started getting footage to score to, was it what you expected it to be? Yeah, I think it kind of was because I had a relationship with Dave Wasson, the showrunner, for a very long time. We worked together about 15 years ago, the first series ever. And we had talked a lot about it. And, um, you know, I think some people maybe expected things to be closer to the game, but the reality is this had a sort of exist in a parallel universe to mm -hmm. the game. You know, um, basically there's not much, as much as I love the game, I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen. Uh, there's not, you don't have a sense of who these characters are besides, you know, a little pew pew thing with the finger and just sort of running sideways. And these are fantastic boss battles. So like all these personalities had to be created from scratch, mm -hmm. essentially. Who's Mugman, who's Cuphead, and what is the dynamic of that relationship? So. I uh, understood that as, as composer, my job was to sort of uh, help that dynamic, help sell the stories, help sell who the characters were. Uh, and that essentially is even more important than, you know, jazz music or big band or whatever uh, we're trying to, you know, stay true to as far as the aesthetic, or the, the audio aesthetic, because uh, we're in the business of storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, no, yeah, I, I, I kind of like, knew what was coming. And then as, when I was, as I was watching it, I felt, I get this, I know what needs to happen here. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, I felt, I was not surprised. I was, I was ready and, uh, you know, went head first into it. Hmm. You guys want to ask the next question? Oh, sorry. I don't know how I usually run this thing, Sapphire. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Just go for it. Just go with the flow. I, I'm usually the one who hosts the podcast, and this is uh -huh. your guys' first time on it. So. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Well, listen, we, we're all friends here. We yeah. all know everything about each other now. I would actually love to rip, rip off that a little bit. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'd love to talk about sort of your role in, like, you know, you, you say that, you know, we had a, you guys had to create these characters and create their personalities and that we're in sure. the business of storytelling. How does that actually translate to you as a composer when you're composing these pieces? Like, how do you actually write music in a sense to create these personalities and help tell the story? So that's a good question. The thing is, this sort of uh, goes against everything we understand as composers and musicians, because, you know, we write music for ourselves. We write what's in our hearts and our minds. But this is not the case here. Everything mm -hmm. I write is nothing I write is precious everything could disappear in a blink. I could spend a week writing this like three minute suite of things. And then if the director or producer is like, you know what, we decided we're gonna change the tone of this scene now. That's a little too scary. Let's make it funny instead. At that moment, everything you wrote out the window and you have to also be able to be zen enough to be like, okay, let's move on and let's try this again. Mm -hmm. You know, which is sort of goes against our natural instincts. But I've, I've been doing this so long that Everything, I, I don't, nothing I write is precious anymore. Uh, that does not mean I don't put a lot of care into it and put all my heart and, and energy into it. It's just, I get that you don't, you can't get like so attached to your babies. Secondly, um, you know, when we write music, we think as in terms of, okay, here's our first verse and then our, something that resembles a chorus and then this melody that's gonna resolve right here after 16 bars or whatever. Well, this doesn't happen either because all of a sudden, you know, there's a chase, somebody stops, hits them, they get hit in the head and uh, they start crying. 
And then a door opens and the devil walks in and now it's a whole different tone, right? So yeah. everything you thought that was supposed to happen or resolve within 16 bars is not going to happen. It's going to be at 15. And all of a sudden, like what you thought was like the perfect melody that had to conclude a certain way, it's not going to do it anymore. You uh -huh. have to just think in, in a whole different way. Think in terms of like, what, how do we sell the story? Again, that's, the, that's sort of paramount. That's the only thing that matters. You know, mm -hmm. and if you're lucky, you could sort of get some cool melodies and ideas across. But again, we are in the service of storytelling, not servicing our own egos. Uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's come up a lot. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, though, uh, what I'm describing there? Yeah. Yeah, and I have a question to go off of that even, too. Sure. Um, when were you hired in this process of creating the show? Had you been there since, like, the maybe just the inklings of the ideas of a Cuphead show, or were you hired on later? I sure was, yeah. Three or four years ago, uh, Dave Wasson, the showrunner, got the assignment of creating the Cuphead show, and we had known each other for a very long time, so he had these lyrics for the uh, Devil song, which is the first piece of music that introduces uh, the devil in the first episode. And he gave them to me and uh, he says, go ahead and try coming up with something. And uh, I came up with this piece of music sort of inspired by Cab Calloway. Um, mm. And also my inspiration is a bit twice removed because it's like, in some ways I'm more influenced by like Danny Elfman's version of Cab Calloway, which he did like with the Yugi Boogie character in A Nightmare Before Christmas. So uh, I wrote this piece of music uh, and that was essentially my audition to get on the show. Um, that sort of went to the producers, went up and down the ranks of Netflix, and then everyone loved it and eventually hired me to be the composer on the show. That was three or four years ago, it feels like. Hmm. Really long time ago. Yeah, so, so I think that piece of music is really interesting too because I think it presents like, it presents kind of a, a dichotomy of like two types of music that I feel like is really apparent throughout the show. Sorry, there's my dog in the background. Uh, the first is, um, the first is like that style of show where the music is very much at the foreground. You know, like you're writing a piece of music and it's kind of like a musical scene where like the music is the show. Sure. And I actually find that pretty similar to the video game as well, where, you know, the music is like really integral to the game because it's it's the sound that's sure. at the foreground, right? But then a lot of the show, you know, there's all these like Tom and Jerry scenes or there's a lot of dialogue where the sound is very much in the background. And I'm wondering how, as a composer, how you go about like, bridging that gap between those kind of two worlds. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear, even before we start, that something's gonna be a featured piece of music, right? In fact, mm -hmm. we'll write that in advance because usually that will be animated uh, to the music. Like if we have a big tap dancing sequence or um, something where a horn player is specifically doing something this way, yeah. Um, yeah. we'll write that and we know that's gonna be, you know, a featured piece and the volume is actually gonna be louder but um, all the other stuff that we just call our cues, um, we know that they're background, you know? And um, we, I understand as a composer, like the goal really is even for you as an audience member, not to even hear it, but to feel it, just to feel the essence of, of the emotion it's trying to convey. Like it's, again, it's not music for music's sake. It's doing, it's serving a, a different purpose, a higher purpose in, in the service of storytelling. So like the best music sometimes is the music you don't hear as an audience. And again, that seems counterintuitive to say as a composer and against all our best instincts because we want to be recognized for what we do. But again, it's not the case. 
that same area, something I've discovered since yeah. doing this series and pursuing my own career as a film scoring composer is comedy in particular is considered to be the most difficult, you know, genre to write for by so many people. And for you, it's been a huge part of your career. So what are your thoughts on that cake about comedy being the most difficult thing to write for? And is that still your point of view? No, I don't find it difficult. I think uh, you, have, you have to have some, sort of a natural instinct for comedy. Like you have to be funny to be a composer in, in, in this sort of uh, genre, like cartoons specifically. You have to understand why, you know, comedic timing works, like why waiting an extra beat before something happens is funny, or why maybe if, so, if, if there's a scene happening, there's a couple of ways you could play it. You could actually play it funny and have funny music, or you do the exact opposite where you have like very dramatic music and all of a sudden that becomes funnier because you're playing it straight, you know, like certain films like Young Frankenstein um, with uh, Gene Wilder, like, the score, it's like, it's a comedy, it's a brilliant comedy, but the entire score was played very dramatic and serious. And that sort of helped make that movie funnier. Uh, now, in other cases, like uh, Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure, Danny Alvin's first big major score for Tim Burton, it's like the music is absolute comedy and silliness and it helps propel that story in a different way uh, rather than being dramatic. Um, you know, there's just, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of uh, sort of like the, the comedic perspective like and also with the creators like they have their own comedic timing and things they want to hit so um yeah i think it's it's a really hard thing to define it's a hard thing to teach it's a it's an instinctual thing uh getting comedy or or, or emotional things too just as important like how to how to make something feel emotional and heartfelt is another question like how do why do we know because for me Music, I'm very non-academic as far as my approach to music. It's very emotional, the way I reach, the way I, I compose, you know. Uh, um, and that has a lot to do with the fact that I'm not a school musician. I didn't go to college for uh, any of this. So I rely uh, a lot on my instinct and uh, just sort of like emotional guidance to make decisions. And like, is yeah. that emotional guidance? Is that, is that all, is that often kind of all your decision or is that something you're often working with other show creators on kind of deciding? Uh, yeah. So when you sit down uh, in a spotting session, which is the first time you get with the director and say producers and you watch the 11 minute episode for the first time, uh, they have this sort of idea of what they want and all the scenes. So you, so at the end of a spotting session, session in theory, you should be able to have like a nice map of every cue you're gonna write, where it starts, where it ends, how many there's gonna be, and what every cue should feel like. Uh, sometimes they'll give you um, the, the cartoon with a temp track. You know, that's what we call, um, it's, that's basically um, a fake score made up of just little chunks of music that they found from whatever music library they're using, or just maybe some other stuff they like. So that'll be sort of a reference. And that's something I'll hear and I'll be like, okay, that gives me a sense of either the emotional tone or maybe the instrumentation they want. You know, uh, maybe they wanted to, this piece to feel like a 1930s jazz style ensemble, or they wanted to feel more like a, just a, a string section doing something very pretty. Um, 
So I'll listen to that and I'll ask them, does that sound right? Or do you like the way that feels, but can I do it with these other instruments? Because essentially you could create any emotion, even you know, with any set of instruments, theory should be able to create the feel that you want. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it goes, it, to answer the question more clearly, I think is uh, it's both of us. It's, it comes from the direction and also it's up to me to sort of interpret that and you know, put it on the screen. What cue in Cuphead uh, took you the most tries to get that feeling in time and just right? You know, the only thing that's coming to mind is just the stuff that was really hard to do. Like the big chases, uh, let's say the first episode where the, the devil's finally chasing Cuphead and Mugman through the carnival, and they're on, on these rides and different things are happening. It's sort of like, there's a lot of timing beats that are very, difficult to hit. It becomes a, a technical challenge, more so than a musical, um, a question of, uh, more than a creative one. It's sort of like you have the software, right? Where you have, let's say you use something called Logic and you have like tempo maps where you're trying to hit different things. And I'm trying to make sure it lands on fours or eights so that it has the musicality. So maybe you'll speed up a piece of music so that as soon as they crash into the wall, it's happening right on four beats. So like I could resolve a musical phrase and then slow it down and then speed it up again, but all the while trying to make it sound like some big band thing, right? And then you have to do all these ridiculous things too, like it's scary now. So now you have it going into a minor key or some dissonant notes, you know, but still trying to feel like authentic jazz. I mean, I don't consider what I do authentic in any form. I make fake jazz, right? So uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, I, I, I almost forgot what the initial question was now, but uh, I'm already on some other tangent. Does that sort of answer something, I think? It does, and this is a podcast. It's all about tangents. Good, good, fantastic. Yeah, I have a question sort of off of that material. So mm -hmm. I, I, looking through your website and just listening to some of the music that you have already created, you have a very eclectic set of influences. I, I see as much punk rock and hardcore music as I see Carl Stalling and Raymond Scott's early cartoon music sure. and then big band era stuff. What music in particular were you using as sort of an influence for the score in this besides the, the obvious big band era and Carl Stalling stuff? For uh, Cuphead? Cuphead, yeah, sorry. Uh, the biggest influence is probably Raymond Scott, so 1930s jazz composer, who was interesting for being very uh, quirky and strange in what he did. He, he could, called what he did uh, descriptive jazz and even used the word fake jazz at one point. Um, because in a time where you know, a lot of the jazz was based on improvisation, he wrote the note of every single solo that was played in the Raymond Scott Quintet. And he used very descriptive titles like uh, uh, War Dance for Wooden Indians or, or uh, Dinner Music for a Pack of Hungry Cannibals, uh, The Oil Gusher, like all these titles that sort of conveyed these sort of visuals. Now he wasn't directly making music for cartoons. He was just making really weird jazz style music. And that has been a huge influence alongside the music of Leroy Shield, who was another 1930s composer who was doing these series called like Laurel and Hardy and uh, Little Rascals, you know, our gang, uh, a lot of very charming childlike music. Uh, but, you know, more so than that, more so than big band jazz and Duke Ellington and Cap Calloway, like 
I was influenced by just very simple, like timeless melodies. Something like as simple as Three Blind Mice or Pop Goes the Weasel, arguably has meant more to me than Take the A Train. You know, it's like that, the simplicity of a melody like that is, is, is something I'm trying to achieve. Now it's near impossible to sort of get to the heights of, of, of something like that. But, you know, you try to aim that high at least and land somewhere halfway if you can. So yeah, um, simple melodies, but you know, I take, like you were saying, I do take influence from everywhere. Um, I was working on Cuphead yesterday and then I went to go see this band called the Circle Jerks uh, at the House of Blues, which is like this hardcore punk band from the late seventies, early eighties from Los Angeles. And then I come home and start working again, you know, and that seeps into the score at some point, you know, those elements like punk rock, especially that early stuff where you have players that didn't know how to play their instruments. There is a sort of magic in that kind of music to me that cannot be achieved by trained musicians. You know, the innocence, the naivete that comes from struggling on an instrument and just trying to eke out a melody or a rhythm is something that I strive for. And that I can't because it's sort of like, the more you learn, the less you're able to achieve that. You know, I listened to stuff I recorded when I was 15 or 16. I'm like, why can't I sound like that anymore? Because I'm too good now. I have to unlearn. Maybe I need to switch, play guitar left-handed and record that way so it sounds ridiculous because that's what I want. I want the sense of urgency. I want mistakes. I want uh, things to be slightly out of tune. These are the kind of things that I look for. This sort of like, like subconscious tension that you feel when something is just a little bit out of tune is what I'm trying to find in music. Very cool. Yeah, I think that point is really interesting because I don't know, I, of course I was pondering on your website before this and, and sure. under your labels you have absurdist. And to me, that just like really speaks to that label that you've given yourself. And also, I think it's it it really speaks to a lot of the work you've done, both in, you know, cartoons and, you know, I was looking at some of your movies and, you know, I, I haven't I haven't actually watched any of those movies, but based on what I've read on IMDb and just on the covers and titles alone, they they they're so like ingrained in the absurdity. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and like, is, I, uh... is that something that Obviously, I think you feel at home in kind of that genre. And do you, I'd love for you to speak like, do, I guess, do you feel at home in that genre? And also, is that, is that something that you, you want to continue for the rest of your career? Or are you like trying to escape into more, I don't want to label it as mainstream, but just like other kind of genres? Um, the thing about cartoons uh, is that it's a place where I could, where my short attention span is right at home, where I could jump from genres. Like I could be doing, you know, some sort of Victorian thing and all of a sudden it goes into some hardcore punk thing. And then all of a sudden we're back into some banjo hoedown all within 43 seconds. Like that's how my brain works. I'm just wired that way. Like I'm just boing, 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 boing. And even in my own personal music, like that's, that's what I like to hear and that's what I like to make. The first album I ever did was like instrumental cartoon music for non-existent cartoons. I was already doing that as a teenager for no reason, you know, um, and the bands that I gravitate to do stuff like that. There's a few avant-garde artists that most people aren't familiar with, like 
the residents from San Francisco or, or Oingo Boingo, uh, Vivo, like there's some bands that were all that were very cartoonesque, uh, very animated, very absurd. Like absurdity lives in animation. Like if Salvador Dali was alive today, he would think that SpongeBob SquarePants is sort of the height of surrealism. Because it is, you know, Dali came to America and he said, I'm trying to find who are the great American surrealists. And he said it was Walt Disney and the Marx Brothers. He thought this is the height of surrealism in this country. You know, if you think about it, yeah, as wholesome as you think of Walt Disney's work, it, it was the height of surrealism. You know, if you think of the films he was making and Fantasia and all that stuff. So I've had a similar quest you know, uh, where does absurdity and surrealism live? And it happens in Cuphead and it happens in SpongeBob SquarePants and, and certain directors that have these absurd visions. I, I, I would be happy to do any kind of genre film, especially because I, I, I think we do our best work as artists when we're outside of our comfort zone. At this point, absurdity is my comfort zone. It's what I do, but how about like a, Maybe give me a, like a, something that's a, a true romantic film. Let's see what happens. I would love to try that. You know what I mean? Why not? I think like giving Trent Reznor a, a, a Pixar cartoon is a stroke of genius. And they did it. You know, I think anytime that happens is, is when you're going to have the most interesting art to, you know, coming out of someone when they're pushed beyond their comfort place. Something that would be you know, kind of outside my comfort zone, but I'm trying to get more into is experimenting with, you know, putting instruments in different areas. And I noticed with Cuphead, you have this bit you do where you put the trumpet bell like into water to get that <laughs> gurgling yeah. sound. Yeah. How, when, when in your career, because if it didn't like start with Cuphead, did you first start, you know, using those sounds and implementing them into your score to get, you know, that level of absurdity in your orchestration? <laughs> Uh, back on the first show I did, um, Making Fiends, like, was that 2015 or so? I mean, we were using, uh, like, sounds from goats and farm animals and, and like, slide whistles and toys. Uh, but that's nothing that I invented. You know, I've always admired sort of avant-garde artists that were doing these kind of things. This group called The Residents from San Francisco made an entire album with toy instruments, you know, and that was, like, in the late 70s. Um, so, you know, there's a precedent for this kind of thing. The thing is, and this is sort of what I think makes me interesting as a composer. I think you're only as interesting as your influences, right? So it's important to have a collective taste, to explore music, to sort of go beyond John Williams, right? Uh, like, just because I know composer friends that, you know, just love other composers, but I don't, you know, I hardly listen to like film music, frankly, uh, I, I listen to bands. I listen to stuff that moves me physically. Like there's no John Williams score that could make me want to dance and, and want to get punched in the face like last night at the Circle Jerk show because there was a slam pit that took, it took up the entire uh, House of Blues and it was just this mosh pit that was just circling like a, like a whirlpool of bodies flying and it was like, this is, this is the real effect of music right here. I'm watching it. And it's these four guys on stage making bodies fly through the air. And John Williams can't do that. 
only the Circle Jerks can do that, or Black Flag, or some of these other bands. So, um, yeah, I think uh, again, I value the 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 emotional response that music gives me. Like, and that's the thing I want to do. How do you translate that? How do I put punk rock into jazz? I don't know. It's hard. I try. You know, you try to just infuse that energy if you can, but still give it a melodic structure and and some logic. But you know, that's why. Um, all those influences are important to me as a composer. Yeah, so kind of going off that, I uh, and kind of going off the trumpet and water thing, you know, I heard you give it, say, in another interview that you were specifically looking for ways to, you know, use like this traditional instrumentation in a non-traditional way. And I think sure. that's really interesting. And I think it's something that, you know, people kind of do a little bit like in, in, the, in an academic setting and composition sure. school, but... I was, I just, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk more about like actually the kinds of sounds you were aiming to create by, by using traditional instruments and non-traditional sounds and like what you actually did to achieve those. Sure. Um, I found these guys, um, a woodwind duo called Moon Hooch. Uh, they, I love them. Oh, great. So you guys, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, uh, they're part of the Cuphead score. Uh, and one of the reasons why, um, is because friend of mine, Jeff Winter, who's been helping me coordinate a bunch of uh, musicians and stuff, he is part of the Raymond Scott archives. You know, he's part of maintaining the legacy of Raymond Scott. And we've been friends for a very long time because I've been a fan. And I reached out to him just as a young, uh, at your age to like, I want to learn more about Raymond Scott. So he wrote to me and said, hey, you know, I know you're putting together this Cuphead thing. Like I found these two guys that are basically in the same spirit of Raymond Scott as far as our approach to music. Raymond is the guy that first had the trumpet player put the bell in the bucket of water. And he goes, these guys like have like giant traffic cones coming out of their the, <laughs> the baritone sax and all this stuff. And, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And they're not even jazz guys. They do something like that sounds like dubstep techno kind of stuff. It's crazy, right? It's very mechanical, very sort of like dance music. But again, I told him, I think this makes sense in jazz and swing like bringing in guys that aren't supposed to be doing swing is what is going to make it interesting right trent reznor doing pixar cartoons same philosophy so moon Hoot has been part of the score and like that's another example like the stuff they do with the with the uh, the tubes coming out of the the things and just sort of achieving this deeper tone trying to get weird like squelchy sort of gurgling so a tone that it's almost like a dubstep wah 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 type thing uh like that's the kind of stuff i've been looking for like how do we get just a trumpet player like get the, how deep can you go with a with a <clears throat> plunger like what's the weirdest sound can you make it sound like a baby crying like we had this episode of baby bottle i think was the title like can we make a baby crying sound out of this right like there's there's always things i'll try like hang uh paper clips on the guitar strings uh, put a, a little piece of aluminum foil on the strings and then try strumming you know anything to achieve different tones i'm always trying to trying to find out new ways to make these instruments do new things and that that may be because i didn't go to school maybe because i don't know that you're not supposed to put a bell of a, of a trumpet in water and maybe that'll ruin it nobody told me that that would happen uh but the fact that i don't know the rules means it's just sort of anything goes you know maybe i should know the rules it's, it's, look at i'm not proud that i didn't go to school i wish i i knew how to read and write music uh but 
alas, here I am. I'm literally too busy working <laughs> to learn how to read and write music. Right, it does the job. And right, I mean, right. I think your drummer personality is really coming out there because the percussionists here at our school, I mean, even if, you know, they're in the third year of their doctoral program, they still play with everything. And if it's not an instrument, that doesn't matter. They, they've decided Absolutely. that it is. Uh, John Lennon said, you know, he goes, uh, I don't know how to play tuba, but you give me a tuba, I'll get a fucking thing out of it because I'm an artist. You know, like if it means banging on it or, you know, just blowing some rhythmic thing out of your mind, like anything, like, and drummers, we're cavemen, you know, we are primitive musicians in a sense, you know, we, and I treat every instrument like a percussion instrument, it just is, it doesn't matter, I'm just always thinking in terms of, of rhythms, so uh, that's funny. And when you're creating these sounds, like, is it, is it more like, man, I want to experiment with this guitar in as many ways as possible and see how many sounds I can get out of it? Or is it more like, man, I have this idea for this sound that I want to create and I'm going to use this and this and this to create that? Hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes I wish there was time to sort of experiment like the way you're describing it. Like, Ooh, let's see what, what will this do against this over here? Yeah. Uh, but here's the truth. Like, I have like a few days to finish writing an ep uh, music for an episode. So, you know, as musicians, we talk about, you know, waiting for inspiration and in our muse and, you know, God's sending this message through here and it's going to come out mm -hmm. through our fingers or whatever. <laughs> None of that is happening for me. It doesn't exist. There is no muse. There is no waiting for inspiration. There's me sitting down at 10 a.m., my hands coming down and me writing right at that moment because everything is due on Friday. So, uh, again, I, I, I can't romanticize anything that I'm doing. You know, I know that's what we're supposed to do as musicians, you know, talk about inspiration and all, but no, there isn't. I, my stuff is due on a certain day and I'm going to get fired. And there's millions of dollars at stake for this giant, you know, corporation putting money towards Cuphead or whatever it is I'm working on. And I have to turn it in on time. So yeah, um, there's, Unfortunately, not time to experiment a lot. I, I'll do the best I can because I, that's the way I like making music. So I'll just sort of experiment, come up with ideas. And if it works, great, let's go, let's move quickly. But um, I wish there was a project where I could just spend six months, you know, in a junkyard and just grabbing things and let's see what makes noise and play around. But, you know, I'm at a point now where like, okay, I bought all these junk parts and I've recorded them and now I sample them and have my assistant sort of take the samples and put them in, in my sampler software so that you know, I could move quickly and efficiently in the studio and just record and be done uh, in a few days, as opposed to, you know, wandering around and moving a piano up into the, to a canyon and then setting up microphones over the course of a month, you know? In the words of one of my favorite professors, inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> I know, that's hilarious. What did he, what did they mean by, by that when they said it? We were, I was in my film scoring class actually, yeah. and one of the students, um, they said, sorry, I didn't turn in my assignment for today. I just wasn't feeling inspired. Wow, that's hilarious. My teacher, <laughs> my teacher uh, Professor Tom Morrison said, inspiration is for amateurs. I gave you the cue on Tuesday and it's Thursday. 
That's amazing. That's wonderful. Hey, I'm curious. Let me ask all three of you a question. I'm wondering if any of the stuff I've said seems like counterintuitive to the things that you've learned in school as far as, you know, approaching music or composition, or, or does it all sort of seem in line with things that you, you're learning or does it feel like off the left field? I think it, I think it depends, right? Because a lot of the time, you know, like I've studied with Tom Larson too. I actually assisted in teaching his film composition course and, and mm -hmm. Tom, you know, he comes from this work background. He, he composed a ton of films for PBS. He, um, he worked for radio for a long time. You know, he's done all these things and he very much has that business mindset where it's like, you get it on Monday, it's due on Friday. You know, don't worry about being like an excellent artist about it. Think of it more as a craft that you're honing. But, you know, there's the other side of it too, where I'm sure Sapphire can speak to this a lot considering she's a composition major, but you know, because like composition majors, for example, they have to, if you're a DMA in composition at, at our school, you have to give one concert that's an hour's worth of compose, compose music once a year. So you get a lot of time to really think right. and to really make every single thing intentional. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you do have the time to wait for inspiration. Mm -hmm. I think we kind of, in school, like you kind of, depending on what professor you have, depending on what you're working on, right. you kind of get a little of both worlds. Interesting. Sapphire, what do you say? I agree with that. It really depends on your professor and that goes in like every area I even on clarinet I have you know I've had very classic centered teachers where like we don't play this repertoire we don't use this technique that's too right. out there we're not into that and I've also had professors that are like have you tried hanging yourself upside down from your chair and seeing what that feels like it really just depends on the teacher and right. what their preferences are. And then, you know, once you finish, you, you know, your course and everything with that you have with that professor, um, then you decide what to take and leave. Uh, what about you, Ian? You've been in school much longer than I have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said so far. And I do think a lot of it depends on the professor. And I feel like it is all up to you as the person once you leave school. And I think that, you know, that we learn this wide, broad idea about composition or performance or whatever, and then you can take and leave whatever you want once you're out in the real world. And I think a lot of people, especially in the film composition industry, would definitely go with the inspiration is for amateurs because <laughs> there's just not enough time for right. you get inspiration on everything. I mean, maybe you have inspiration on one thing, but then the 10 other cues from that episode are you, I have this much time to do this and I have right. to get it in. Right, there you go. I mean, and it's not to say the work I do is, is not inspired. Like I do put a lot of care into everything I write. You know, I'll, I'll sit there and, you know, I have a sense of the calendar, uh, but I'm gonna do as much as I can until I have to move on. Um, you know, it's, the reality is, you know, once you get out of school, like I've been in a position where the, the producers have, the network has said, you know, well, maybe we have to hire another composer to help you. And li quite literally like threaten my own livelihood. This is how I pay rent, you know? So yeah, again, you have to, uh, you're gonna have to figure out a way to get things done. Again, like I wasn't feeling inspired. It's not, never gonna cut it. Uh, uh, 
you're gonna you're gonna have to find a way no matter what you could be sick with covid and you're gonna have to work through that week you know it's nuts yeah do you ever find that like like i don't know and you maybe this is like my my i'm more of a musician than i am anything else and like a, a performer and some sure do you ever find it like do you ever find it hurtful to your artistry that this is kind of the business you ever find it like difficult that you're you're more required to get something get done than you are to make it exactly what you you know to spend all the time in the world on it that's a great question right um we sort of have to accept that this is this is sort of the reality of making music at this scale. Like I've been lucky enough to work with orchestras, uh, but also I realized like in much the same way that the masters had like patrons like Mozart, you know, having the, the uh, you know, the church or like an emperor pay for, uh, you know, this opera or it's like Viacom is sort of my version of that. And they'll pay for me to record with an orchestra. Like this is our modern version. There, there would, my music would not exist on an orchestral level or, or to such a wide audience if it wasn't for my corporate overlords. It's like, this is the reality of modern you know, composition. Uh, but it doesn't mean I can't do my own stuff. In fact, me working on these shows allows me to be able to put on my own show one day. Let's say, who's that? Ian, who is that? This is Ziggy. Hey, Ziggy. <laughs> Uh, you know, in other words, you could parlay whatever success you have in a commercial venture like Cuphead, SpongeBob, and turn it into, uh, you know, maybe get an audience for what you're doing. I can put on my own music and call you guys six months ago. Hey, can we do another one? I want to promote this uh, CD and I got a live concert coming up, you know, and maybe we'll talk again and I could get uh, an audience for that. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, there's a little give and take. I mean, I get it. This is a, it's compromised music in the sense that it's not my pure vision, but I, I know that I'm in the service of, of something else. But also, if you're lucky to work with creators that you believe in, then you're going to want your music to fit whatever it is they need. You know, that's something to keep in mind, right? I believe in Dave Wasson. I believe in C.H. Greenblatt on Jellystone. So he says, ego, like, you know, I love that, but you know, it's, it, it needs to be a little kookier. It needs a, like a kazoo or something. I'm like, fantastic. We're going to add kazoos to this entire thing because I trust their vision. I am here to help see their vision through. And now it's ours. Now it becomes our music, you know, and that's good. That's good too. So, you know, you're going to find places where you'll be unhappy because sometimes you have a, a, a showrunner that you just don't like how they think. And you're like, listen, at least I'm getting paid or at least my name's getting out there. Always do the best work you can like that's some advice i got from um mark mothersbaugh one time he said to me he goes i was just starting out and i said he said no matter what you do i don't care if it's like you know the worst movie b movie like always do your best work because at the end like at least people will be like well that was a terrible movie but that was an excellent score right so oh you don't like or maybe they're only paying you five dollars right but that don't let that stop you from making the best possible score. Like pretend it's a million dollar score anyway, and, and just do your best possible work. Um, yeah, it's important. Are you working on anything right now that is not controlled by the corporate overlords? <laughs> I'm working on, uh, and this is something that I haven't 
really talk about much because, but I should because, uh, you know, when you put it out there, then it forces you to do it. Uh, but I'm trying to make a live show. Uh, not only my own music, but also music that I've done for all these different shows and figure out a way to perform it live and have like video multimedia type thing. It's kind of complicated because I work for multiple networks, but I have this vision and it has to do, you know, with seeing, I don't know if you know about Danny Alton's concerts that he did where he did Magnum uh, uh, for Christmas Live and like the actual singing and it's synced up to the movie. Like I saw that at the Hollywood Bowl and it was just gorgeous. I'm not going to be at that scale, but you know, the, the club version of that, uh, that I'm trying to develop uh, with some animators and musicians and I'm slowly building the concept and the stage look. And, you know, maybe this year or next year I'll have uh, that vision fleshed out, but that's sort of my back burner secret project that I'm working on right now. Very That's cool. so cool. I'm actually working on a similar college level project like that right now. Awesome. What is it? Tell me. Uh, it's my recital. It happens in yeah. April. Um, and I booked a black box theater for it. And so I got a rock band uh, yes. playing um, pieces from a score I recently wrote for uh, the company Western Meadowlark for their film Moving in Stereo. Yeah. Um, I've got a 30 minute piece uh, with the percussion quartet, um, right. saxophonist, a narrator, and a rapper that has uh, lights and sounds yeah. stick oh to my it. God. Um, and then a piece called uh, Stars Beyond Turmoil, which is for steel pans and prepared electronics, which has all these different sound bites and stuff from the first two months of the pandemic from the news and stuff that I mixed into the That's fantastic. Score. See. Like when you get to where I'm at, then you're gonna it's gonna be that much easier for you because you've done it now. I see that's why I wish I wasn't I did go to college because I would have loved to have experience and some guidance and how to do this because I don't know what the hell I'm doing for any of this. I'm mean, trying to just figure it out right now. So uh, yeah, congratulations. That's well, really cool. Thank you. Well, it's on April 21st. If you want to come to Nebraska for some reason, you're welcome <laughs> to join. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a little bit of a yeah, drive. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is all the questions I have. Andrew, Ian, any last questions? I have one more that I, I'd like to ask. And maybe uh, it's it's a slightly personal, but sure. Um, you know, Ian and I, I can't speak for Sapphire, but Ian and I, you know, we're very much in school to be educators. Yeah. You know, we're here getting our DMA. We teach a lot. Sure. And we're very focused on education. And you know, like I said, I, I help teach film scoring here at the school. And, you know, I have lots of students who are really interested in this field and who, but the first step just seems so mind-bogglingly difficult. How do you get that first gig? How do you start in this profession? And I was just wondering if you had any advice for, you know, newcomers to the, to the field, what, what advice would you give to them to, you know, get started and to get going? Uh, I feel what you're saying, man. It's really hard. Listen, I, mm -hmm. I was stuck in all my 20s into my 30s in, in a job I didn't care for. I was in a cubicle trying to make music happen in some form or another. Um, the, the reality is like I was consistent and persistent. I kept making music. Uh, at night, I would play in bands. We would do shows. I would be sending demos. At that time, it was you know CDs you'd mail out or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, early 2000s, uh, early days of the internet. But um, 
the persistence was like key for me. Like there was times we just wanted to give up, but I love music so much that I knew, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to keep playing in bands. I'm going to keep, you know, find little projects because you can always find like a, a friend's like, you know, short film. You can always find indie filmmakers and not get paid. You just have to keep making things like keep putting your stuff out there. Make sure that you have a body of work slowly developing over 10 years. I had done a bunch of short little things. There was like reviews in the paper for live shows or CDs that I put out or just short little projects. Like they were floating around here and there. Film festivals now online on YouTube. Like you could just score an independent film or just even the music behind a podcast. And all of a sudden people will know, like after a while people are gonna notice, you know? So there's no like quick route. Um, it's just like, like just, you have to just sort of keep sprinkling your work across the world um, gradually and slowly. And then one day someone will actually pay attention. There's enough stuff that's interesting. And I would also say, you know, try to create a unique voice, something that is different than other people. Um, and that's, a, that's very difficult because at first, like people maybe not, they won't like it, but you have to stand out as a composer. You have to do something that makes you different than everybody else, you know? Listen to different music, like just explore stuff that you would have never thought you would have liked. I'll, I'll sit down and like, I'll, I'll listen to like a dubstep thing or like, you know, I'll see like, why, what's, why is Doja Cat so popular? I'll listen to the production. I'll be like, what is happening in this track that is interesting, that is appealing to people, you know? And maybe it's difficult sometimes to understand, but you know, I'll still listen. So you have to be open-minded, uh, persistent, uh, just really, really keep at it. I mean, it's difficult. I'm not gonna say it's easy. It's it's really, really been a, a difficult road. And for me, like growing up in East LA, like it just felt like Hollywood and all that was like so far away and so impossible to achieve. And I was kind of timid. So I never, I didn't have the confidence to talk to people. Uh, I remember one time I had a, like a potential meeting with a producer in my twenties and I sat outside the door and I just like, my hands were sweaty, I was shaking. And I couldn't go in the room. I just didn't have it in me. I just, my music was an envelope. I just left it there and I left because that's how I afraid, afraid I was at that time. Like I just didn't have the confidence to interact. It was just, it seemed like I, I can't do this. It's not for me. Uh, so yeah, try to develop a sense of confidence. And I feel like a lot of young people, younger people have it now. I don't know, maybe, um, but I didn't at the time. So yeah, confidence, be eclectic, be interested in music and just keep going. It's going to be hard and just keep making music Make music anyway, even if you don't become a successful, whatever, uh, composer or artist or musician, just keep making it because you love it. You know, that's sort of the other thing, I think. What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's that's actually really nice. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a curveball question here. Um, so I'm a big punk rock hardcore fan as well, and I love seeing a film composer that's into this kind of music. And I've had this thought for years now. Why are there not any punk rock musicals? Like, wow, what a genre that would be perfect. Yeah, music, that's true. Political. Have you ever thought I know. about getting into didn't that? Didn't they try to make a? Didn't they try to make like a Green Day one at one point? They did. I think American Idiot was made. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that, that happened. It did, right? Okay, so that maybe was a little bit more pal palatable. Is that the word? Yeah. Yes. For audiences. But, you know, there could be stuff that's even crazier than that. You know, just more intense, more hardcore. You know, there's a lot of great stories in punk rock, too. Uh, you know, uh, 
guys like Henry Rollins have had an amazing, amazing journey. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see that. That'd be amazing. That's a great idea. Yeah, hey, let's make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm like the non-composer of this group. I, that is not my field. I just love the music and I love all of the- Can we just put a trombone in that punk rock score somehow? Let's bring some ska back, you know? We've all been wanting ska to come back. I just saw the, I, the, special, the specials perform, by the way, uh, three weeks ago. Together. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, it was like a, a benefit show here in LA. It was like a backyard private benefit. Like, or, I forgot the name of the organization. Uh, but yeah, it was amazing. Uh, I love Scott too. I mean, that's a that's a big influence for me too. Uh, the band, that band, of specials, by the way, has even directly influenced like the Cuphead show because they made spooky, like Scott, like they used minor keys in ska when nobody else did, you know. So they were able to make songs that sounded spooky and weird, uh, and that sort of stuff that I've had to do with big band, like turn like a big band thing into all minor key and kind of dissonant and weird, you know. Yeah, I hear Ghost Town. I hear that influence in some of your music. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a huge, that song alone, like it's been such an influence for so many people. I remember Damon Albarn from um, from uh, the Gorillas saying that like his goal was to make like a whole album of just Ghost Town, like rip off Ghost Town and just do, make every song sound like Ghost Town. So listen to the song Ghost Town by the special. It's amazing. Everybody. You got the starting of your musical right there. I know. Let's go. I'm ready. I've been waiting. <laughs> this is time for Ian's composing debut. Amazing. I, actually, I think I could pull off the punk rock stuff because I have no idea what I'm doing. It's coming out of a- You and me are in the same boat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, this is something that for season three, I'm trying to integrate into all of the episodes. Ego, do you have any more questions that you want to ask us? Curveball, direct, and otherwise, go for it. Yeah, actually, I do. I want to know what what do you want to do like after college? Like, what is the what is the uh, goal for for life if things work out the way you want them to for all of you? Who wants to go first? I mean, I can go first. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so I'm finishing my doctorate in trombone performance. So I yeah. would love to. Uh, play the trombone in some orchestra if, if that's possible oh, yeah. and teach. Um, I currently teach history of rock and roll and I, I'm a big popular music guy too. So Fantastic. To, yeah, so I'd love to be able to keep teaching history of rock stuff and any types of courses on popular music as well. Yeah, that's great. Andrew? Yeah, sure, I'll go next. Uh, so I'm also finishing my DMA um, in jazz performance. And um, oh. but I, I do a lot of, I have a lot of work in like the music tech world too. I've done like a lot of recording engineering and stuff. So ideally I would find a job actually teaching music tech just cause I right. find that really fun. And it's still pretty new in like the collegiate realm. And there's still lots of avenues that like people are just beginning to explore. And I just love to be a part of that. Right. I would need that class by the way. It's, it's like, all that stuff is still difficult for me. So. We need more people like that teaching for sure. So I'm not going the teaching route. I actually am not a huge fan of teaching. I enjoy it, but it's not like my passion. Um, I'm finishing off my BA in music composition with a minor yeah. in business right now. And then I'm going to move on to get my master's in arts administration because while I want to keep composing 
films on the side, have that be my side hustle. I got some producers and directors I really love working with. What I really want to do is form my own new music nonprofit centered around educating and engaging new music with the community so that people are more engaged with classical music, you know, contemporary music as well. So they're not just like, this is inaccessible to me. It's Beethoven, Brahms, and Mozart. I want to connect music to the community like it used to be and, you know, doing that through nonprofit work. That's fantastic. See, what a what a noble, great thing you're doing there. I, I think uh, it's important. I think something like the Game Cup had helped do that in the sense that like, you know, what Chris Madigan did was he brought this 1930s jazz to like a whole generation of young gamers. You go on YouTube and you listen to his tracks, there's comments underneath like, what do you call this music? What is this? Like, and it's, you imagine these young kids never heard like this big band stuff. And it's like games and movies can do that, but directly with the work that you're describing too, is, it's important as well. Yeah, I remember the year when I was 14 and everyone started, you know, rage playing Cuphead. Um, <laughs> the next semester was actually the semester we actually had to do auditions for yeah. jazz band for the first time because they had so many people sign up. That's amazing. See, that, that Chris is doing uh, the Lord's work over there. It's really neat. Uh, I just talked to him for the first time like a few weeks ago. We never met before. So we talked for an hour on the phone. It was nice. Nice. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. It was really fun. I hope we learned something. I don't know. Did, sorry, did I, did that come out okay? Did we do good? Excellent. I think we did good. A lot of fun. It's great. Yeah. Good. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun to talk about this stuff. I've been sort of quietly sitting here for three years working on this music and I can't talk about it. And, you know, it's all NDA, blah, blah, blah. So it's exciting for me to be able to share with, with people. Thank you so much, Ego. Yeah, Have a you. great rest thank of your day, and I'll see you later. Bye. Andrew, Bye -bye, stay for a little bit. Yeah, sure. Bye. See ya. All right, Andrew, Ian, where can people connect with you on social media and find your stuff? Oh, uh, probably the best way is andrewmalbase.com. You can see everything I'm doing there. I do not have a website yet. Um, I do have a YouTube page that I've started up with some recordings, though. So if you YouTube Ian Rutherford trombone, there will be some things. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. I'll see you guys tomorrow. And viewers, I'll see you next week. Bye. Great. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.